So we're going to be in Genesis 2 today. If you'll go ahead and open there, we're going to begin in verse 8 in just a moment. I want to uh, thank you for the invitation to be here to share in these good things. I'm prayerful that you're seeing the simplicity of this approach of just reading through the text with somebody. There's a lot that I've been bringing out, and I know it's somewhat overwhelming perhaps, but I want you to see that you can do this. What we're doing as we read through this is just sort of looking at what the text says. I do have PDFs that will be available in PowerPoint if you want those. They have a lot more information. I just thought it would be overwhelming to put that all up here. Uh, And I really wanted to have the intimacy of just looking together at this word and not be distracted by the other things. But it's there if you want it. It's a good resource if you want to read back over it, maybe before you sit down with somebody else to study just to refresh some things in your mind. But today we're in Genesis 2, verse 8. We are looking at the second part of the creation of man. This is what I call life in paradise, which includes marriage. Uh, Those of you who are married in the Lord understand that that is a part of paradise, and so I put that together with the Garden of Eden here. I think it's a foretaste in some ways. Uh, So in Genesis 2, we are beyond the moment when God intimately created the man there in verse 7. It is a second look, if you will, at the creation. We saw the creation week in a generic way in Genesis chapter 1. We saw God and who he is looking at the creation, sort of in the same way that when you look at a piece of art, you see the artist, you see his hand, you see some of his personality. I was a literature major. When you read literature, you can't help but see the writer in the story. He's somehow putting himself autobiographically in, whether that was intent or not. You see the artist when you see the art that the, that the artist does. And so as we look at the world, God has been manifest to us in the world. And specifically, as he's revealed himself in Genesis 1, we learn of his divine nature in a very special way. At the beginning of chapter 2, we began to take a closer look at day 6, at a part of day 6, when God makes man. And the same formula that began Genesis 1, this is the story of the heavens and the earth when God created them, we get that sort of uh, rebroadcast to us, if you will, in verse 4, as we're looking again at God creating heavens and earth, specifically in the marriage of heaven and earth, if you will, in the making of man, as he breathes into this dust the life and and spirit that comes from God. And so this perfect marriage of heaven and earth, we have this sort of dual nature. We recognize that the world we're in is broken and there's something better because there's part of us that is very much like God and not like this world that we are a part of for the moment. Having looked at all of that, let's have a look at the situation God places man in starting in verse 8 of Genesis 2. So we're going to read 8 through 14. The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from there it parted and became four river heads. The name of the first is Pishon, it is the one which skirts the whole land of Havilah where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Bedellium and the onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is Gihon. It is the one which goes around the whole land of Cush. The name of the third river is Hiddekel. It is the one which goes toward the east of Assyria. The fourth river is the Euphrates. So God plants a garden eastward in Eden. That word Eden, if we were reading this in the original, we would hear paradise. That's what Eden means. God planted a garden in a place he calls paradise 
and he places the man that he has just intimately designed and formed and breathed life into, into this garden. I want to go ahead and establish an idea in your minds. We need to think about God who has made this entire universe, and he's been separating. You've noticed that in the first chapter seven times. He separated water from water, light from darkness. He separated all the species, all the kinds, separated man and woman when he made male and female. He separated a day for himself. We've just seen God separating, and we talked about the fact that when that word is used in Genesis 2, it says sanctified. It's the same word. It's the same idea. He made it holy, set it apart. Well, he's made the entire universe. He's made one planet in that entire universe that is where man can live. And even on that planet, he's made a special place where he can have interaction with this man. I want you to consider that the Garden of Eden is a type of a holy of holies. God has made the entire universe and he separated a holy planet. He sanctified a planet for life. And within that, he's sanctified a holy place. That is the Garden I'm doing that on purpose. We're going to see some other vestiges of this idea, and I think we see that uh, played out through the Old Testament in many ways. But this is a special, very holy place where God can come and meet with his man and his woman that he's made, and he's placed them in this place for that particular purpose. But I want you to notice the description of this place. I just love the details that were given. Remember, if God has placed it in here, it's here for a reason. And so it's not just sort of random, these words that he's thrown in here. There is a purpose behind what he's telling us. So out of the ground he's made all the trees grow that are pleasant to the sight and good for food. Well, a tree that's good for food, that just makes sense. We can figure that one out. He's already told them they can eat from the fruit trees. They can eat from every green herb. He told them that back in chapter 1 as he blessed them both with procreation and then what they need to sustain their life. What in the world is the purpose behind a tree that is pleasant to the sight? What good is a tree that's just good to look at? <laughs> it's interesting, some of the trees that are good to look at also have good looking and tasty fruit on them. But why make a tree that's pleasant to the sight? When I was an atheist, one of the things that was challenging to me was to understand why beauty exists if this world is just random chance. <laughs> We would expect everything to be hard edges. We would expect everything to be kind of cold and lifeless and just randomly life appeared. That's not what we find. There is beauty all over this place. Now, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. I understand that. Some cultural aspects of beauty will change over time. What we consider to be beautiful in one age, we may not consider. Even the colors or shapes and things, they, they, they lose some aesthetic. But have you ever seen anybody look at a sunset and go, oh, I can't believe I looked at that. No. People pay good money to go on cruises to see the sunset in the ocean and go up to the mountains to see the sunset or the sunrise from a different vantage point because that is something that universally we can all agree is beautiful. God made that. As I said the other day, my friend, when we were walking, just stopped and was staring at the sunset and said, my father made that. What a beautiful expression. Why does beauty exist? God made dark and light. He could have just made it light, 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 dark, but he didn't. When I was in college, I used to sit up at the stadium when it was empty, uh, just during the week, sit up in the stadium at night and watch the sunset, and you could see the rainbow colors perfectly lined out in the sky on a clear night. Every single color differentiated. It was beautiful. I wasn't a Christian, <laughs> but I saw beauty in that, and it made me long for something better than what I could see looking around this broken world around me. Romans 8 says God subjected the world to vanity, to futility, in hope. <laughs> the point is we'll see what's broken, 
We'll long for something that's better. And that's what literature, that's what art, that's what these, these declarations of I need justice, that's what all this is about. There's something better. We feel that there's something better. We sense there's something better. And beauty helps point us to that. Beauty is a sign of a good God. <laughs> there's an indicator when there's beauty. Why are we drawn to beauty? Why, when someone smiles, does that, does that change the, our perspective on them? And we, we start to find beauty in someone just because they smile at us. Why does that happen? Because beauty draws us to good. Atheists don't have a good answer for why beauty exists. They really don't. And they would come back with, well, it's beauty's in the eye of the beholder, one of those things. But it's not true, <laughs> because there is something universal about beauty. God made trees that were pleasant to the sight because he's good, <laughs> and because he wanted people to think about things that are pleasant and good and him. Spend some time outside. Take some time. Make some time. Go out in nature. Look at the good that's out there. Now, there's mosquitoes. It's a broken world. <laughs> there's stuff going on that you know, is, wouldn't have been going on in the Garden of Eden. <laughs> but there's beauty still, and look for it. He made trees that are pleasant to the sight and good for food. There's also these great conundrums of this tree of life. <laughs> That's what we expect from God. There's also a tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The tree of life he gives them access to, tells them they need to eat from it. it seems the indication is they would live forever, physically perhaps, as they're eating from this tree of life. But what about this tree of the knowledge of good and evil? I'm going to reserve talking much about this until we get into chapter 3 a little bit later. But I want you to just notice when we get down to verses 15 through 17, God gives them a command specifically regarding this tree. <laughs> I don't know why he's put the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden. There is a good purpose. I know that. Everything God made was for a good purpose. I don't know what his design was for this tree. What we do see is that men fail the test, that this tree perhaps is even just put there to offer them an opportunity to love God <laughs> or to reject God. <laughs> And they're going to choose to reject him, as all of us have done. But God has made provision for everything that's needed in this garden, even the knowledge of good and evil. Perhaps at some point they would have needed to have known that in a way where God would have revealed it to them, perhaps even through the use of this tree. But that's conjecture. God has placed everything they need here. The descriptions we get, though, show more and more of what he has put there for their good. In verse 10, Eden is described in terms of water in terms of rivers i want you to think of that as a theme <laughs> rivers of flowing water <laughs> streams of flowing water jesus talks about that those are all types of eden with these river heads when you read through the prophets and all of a sudden there are these rivers and streams and green lands this is all a reflection of eden god's going to restore the rivers to the desert land. <laughs> These ideas, they come over and over and over through the prophets. And it's not that physically he's going to bring water. He's restoring things like Eden was. And so the description of Eden is this riverhead, or this, this fountain that became four riverheads. And the description of Eden then is it's bounded by water all around. Still no rain, but God has created a mist to come up to water the garden. And now there's these rivers to take care of the need of water in the garden. Those of you who've traveled some in the Bible lands understand how important rivers are. Uh, when you read through the Old Testament how important wells were, it's desert. You need these waters. You need to be able to count on them. Here's four rivers they can count on. And we're given their names. Pishon. We're given Gihon and Hiddekel, which is Tigris. And some of your translations went ahead and put that there. And then Euphrates. 
These are rivers that have names. These are rivers that people can locate. The Bible is not a mythical storybook. It is a history book. It doesn't tell all the history we'd like to know, but it tells true history when it tells history. And it gives us history that God wants us to know, everything that pertains to life and godliness, as Peter puts it in the New Testament. So Moses, as he's writing these names of these rivers down, we can't find Pihon and, uh, Pishon and Gihon, but we sure can find Hiddekel and the Euphrates. We know right where those are. For a time, I struggled with that. I thought, you know what, though? There's a flood coming later. It's going to wipe all that away. <laughs> but this was written after that. <laughs> These are names of rivers they could go look up and find. Moses is giving them an opportunity to verify the claims he's making about where this place was. The people who received this originally could have gone and checked on that. Did, I'm sure. <laughs> and we see that with the New Testament as well. The Bible is written as a factual book. And it says, try me. Prove me. Here. <laughs> it's just written in the language of historical documents. This is not mythology. When you read some of the other uh, religious historical books from other religions, you don't have to go very far to start recognizing mythology comes in. The world was born on the back of a turtle. <laughs> that is a very common mythology in Hinduism and in some uh, Native American myths. I've seen the snapping turtle coming out of the banks near our house in in Charleston, with a big stack of earth on its back, I can see where they got that, but they're observing nature and making wrong conclusions about it, like we talked about. It's bad science, and it becomes a mythos for how the world was created. God says, here's how I made the world, <laughs> and everything in it, and that's the argument that David and Paul and the whole Bible makes. The argument from design is the Bible's argument on why there is a God, but he gives us descriptions with these names. But there's more here. Verse 11, the name of the first is Pishon. It's the one which skirts the whole land of Havilah. Again, a place they could find. This is not, you know, once upon a time in the land of so-and-so. This is a place where there is gold. And the gold of that land, my version says, is good. That's the word. It's something God has said several times already. But there may be a different translation for that. The idea here is this is pure gold. Isn't that interesting? Why mention gold when you're describing Eden? <laughs> Why do you think? What, what's gold? Well, it's yeah, what makes it precious? <laughs> what's that? Because we made it that way. Did we make gold? Yeah. Why do we consider gold precious? It's rare. It's rare. Wasn't here. Isn't it interesting? It's not going to be in the heavenly version of this when the streets are just paved with it. <laughs> During the time of Solomon, they talked about silver became so abundant that it was almost worthless. That's the way gold is in the heavenly realm, which is a throwback to Eden. There was just gold laying around in Eden. <laughs> you know. But why do we consider it to be uh, precious? Because it's rare and because it's beautiful. <laughs> You know, gold's something we want. We don't, we don't have, like, rusty chains hanging around our neck. Most of us don't. Some might. But we do wear gold. We like it because it doesn't tarnish. The pure gold doesn't. There's something beautiful about it. Again, it's this aspect of beauty. And besides that, uh, there is good gold, pure gold. There's also bedellium and the onyx stone. We're not going to talk about bedellium yet. We'll get back to that one. What's onyx stone? It's a black rock, so yuck, but... No, it's a beautiful black rock. It's a gem. It's a precious mineral that has become something that we've given value to because of its rarity, because of its purity. 
What's bedellium? Anybody have a different translation than bedellium? That's the word I've seen consistently over and over here. I had to look it up. I, I'm going to tell you what it is if you don't know, but I had to look it up. And then when I did, oh my. Bedellium is a resin that's used to make incense. It's a gum or a resin. So you ever notice the presence of gold and specifically onyx and incense together? Does that, ever, that ring a bell in any way? <laughs> Somebody. Remember, what? Yes. So this is a holy of holies I mentioned to you. Where, what are all the furnishings made out of in the tabernacle and the temple? Pure gold. It's said over and over. Gold that's pure, that's beaten, hammered gold. What must be burned before the high priest can go in to the inner sanctuary where all the furniture is gold? Bedellium, resin, incense, yeah. And what about these black onyx stones? Does that sound familiar? I sh this is where I need my slides. I've got the reference on there. But in Exodus, we find out he's wearing those on his shoulders. And it's got the 12 names of the tribes of Israel on there. The next time we see these three elements together again is when God builds the tabernacle. You know why? Because it's a reflection back to Eden. <laughs> that high priest is going in to deal with sin is what's got him kicked out of Eden. <laughs> he goes in before God in the presence of God with the incense, the gold, and the onyx stones. Those are just randomly laying there in the Garden of Eden, aren't they? No, they're not. With God, nothing is random. And as you read through the Bible, this is where I talk about we're just mining gems. We're just walking along the ground reading the text, and if we just take a second and stop and look down, there's a gold bar laying there. And if we just move that and dig a little bit, there's some onyx stone right there. And that's what happens every time we study the Bible. We're mining gems that God has just left sort of randomly lying there for us. No, he hasn't. It's all there for purpose. Study the book of Leviticus. Yeah, read it. Walk through it once in a while. Just let it soak in. But then go back and stop and look around and look at the ground and see if you don't start seeing more and more of these things. How many times did I read this? I never thought about, why is he mentioning gold and onyx and bedelium of all things? And then you start looking up where you see those again. <laughs> This is the tabernacle where God is walking among men. Once that's been destroyed, his own son comes to tabernacle among us, John chapter 1. <laughs> Once that's been neglected and rejected and God finally destroys it, we are the tabernacle now with the lamb walking among us as the light. Our prayers are the incense. <laughs> it's amazing. We are priests in his service. <laughs> it's just over and over, these themes that go back to what God created in the garden. So we have this beautiful picture of these rivers going out to keep this place verdant and green. No need for rain. Rain is going to be a judgment thing that comes a little bit later. <laughs> but right now, God is dealing with all this beautifully. And so verses 15 through 17. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and keep it. I like this translation. Some of them say to work the garden, but that's a wrong idea. He's just maintaining what God has already put there. That's all he's doing is he's keeping it up. He's working on the procreation bit with the plants, and he's making sure everything's in order the way God wanted him to. God's giving him an opportunity to exercise that dominion that he's given him as part of his nature. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. 
So God puts the man in the garden. He gives him a job. He needs something to do. And so God's filling his time with good things, tending and keeping the garden. And he gives him a command. I want you to notice there's really two aspects of this command. There's a generic part where he says, of every tree of the garden, freely eat. Usually with God's generic commands, there are no restrictions. It's this is, I made this for you. Take advantage of it. But when there's a specific command, there's almost always a restriction, and there's always a consequence then if you don't keep the specific command. Freely eat. I want you to have this. God is overwhelmingly gracious. I made this all for you. Just take it. It's yours. But there's a restriction. <laughs> don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you do, <laughs> it'll kill you. Stay away from it. <laughs> it's bad news for you. It's a good thing. I've got a purpose for it. But I want you to stay away from it. Is God's command hard to understand here? You think about this. Sometimes people say, if we could only just have like just one thing, we could just do one thing. Lord, what's the great commandment in the law? <laughs> I don't want to keep all the, what's the one? If I do it, <laughs> Jesus says, love God. <laughs> and then the second is love your neighbor. Well, there's actually two. <laughs> but if we boil it down to two, there were two here, by the way. <laughs> if we boil it down to two, could we do that? We'd be perfect then, right? They had one and a half maybe here, and they didn't keep it. That's not the issue. Is God trying to test our intelligence by the number of commands or the way he writes his commands? Is he, he wants to make sure we're smart enough to figure things out. The common people heard him gladly, the gospel says. He spoke to them in parables as they were able to understand it. He tried to make it as simple as possible. God is not testing our intelligence. What is he testing then with this kind of a command? Our heart. Obedience. Thank you. That's how he tests our heart. If you love me, keep my commandments. That's really simple. That's the command. <laughs> and then the other commandments, as they follow along, as he is our Lord, if we make him Lord, it's like, I want to do what you say. <laughs> That's what that means. It doesn't mean he's my slave driver. It means he's my shepherd. He goes out before me and shows me the way and says, do it this way. This is what's going to be good for you. <laughs> and so I want him to be my Lord. Most people don't want a Lord. Most people want a Savior that cleans up their mistakes. <laughs> but he can only be our Savior if he's our Lord. You notice that great sermon in Acts 2 that Peter preaches. It's a sermon about salvation. All who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's where he ends at, at part of his sermon with Joel chapter 2. That's what Joel was talking about. This day when the, the young men will prophesy and the old men will dream dreams and even the maidens will have God's spirit and all who call on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's where he ends. It's halfway through a verse from Joel 2, but he ends there with his sermon and he begins to talk about what brought these days on. It was the crucifixion of God's son. It's a sermon about salvation. The man they crucified didn't stay dead. He resurrected and he can offer life, a resurrected life to those who believe on him. And as he closes his sermon, we expect him to say, and so call him the name of your Savior. But what he says is, no, assuredly, God made this man both Lord and Christ. <laughs> he didn't even say, he's your all-sufficient Savior, which is what people are saying. He is that, but he can only be that if you make him Lord, if you do what he says, and if he is the Christ, he's the one that God promised. If he's both of those, then he's your Savior. <laughs> But if he's only the one God promised, and you're just going to him like a vending machine and putting in some forgiveness coins once in a while, but you're not willing to do what he says, he's not your Lord. He's only the Christ. <laughs> he is the Christ. God sent him. There's no doubts about that. But if he's not your Lord, then he's not your Savior. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, 
and not do the things which I say. <laughs> if you love me, keep my commandments. <laughs> That's what makes him your savior. That's why we submit to him. That's why we do his will. He's the Lord. He purchased us, purchased us with his blood. He has the right to demand that we do his will because of the grace he's already extended. He doesn't owe us anything, but we owe everything to him. <laughs> and we need to make him our Lord. So if we go back to Genesis then, this question of don't eat from this tree is not a test of intelligence. It's amazing to me how the Pharisees missed that. They thought if we're just intelligent enough, if we just make enough manipulations and keep these laws in our way, God's going to have to give us salvation. But that's nothing new. We're very tempted to do the same thing. Religious people today are tempted to do the same thing. Our hearts are being drawn by Satan to do the same thing. Aren't you more intelligent than God? Just throw yourself off the pinnacle here. The psalm says he won't even let you dash your, your heel on a rock. <laughs> yeah, but it also says don't tempt the Lord your God. This is the son of God that Satan is tempting with. Don't you know more than God does? Come on. <laughs> well, Eve thought she did later. She wanted to get a bite of that tree. Don't we all? That's our struggle. <laughs> are we going to obey in the simplicity of what God laid down? Or are we going to do what we want to do and then hope it's going to be all right somehow? <laughs> it's not going to be all right somehow. We can't get away with it. He's our Lord. And we're going to see what that does when we reject that when we get into chapter 3 here in just a moment. So God has given them a test. An opportunity to love him by saying, I will do your will. Or to reject him by saying, I'm going to do what I want. I hope it's good enough. And maybe if it's not, then I'll just become my own God. We would never say that. But boy, don't we live it. We've got to be careful. Well, the day you eat of it, you'll surely die. Did they know what death was? No. God knew. <laughs> God knew what death was. Never experienced it. But he knows because he's God. And he gave them the strongest possible terms to avoid it. Why do you think hell's described the way it is? That's something we want to stay away from. I don't think it's a lie or a myth. I think that's really what hell is. But he's telling us up front, stay away from there. You don't want that. Outer darkness, a fire that's never quenched, a worm that never dies being cast out from the presence of God who is good and light and order and everything that you desire. And you want to sell them short for something temporary. Talking to me <laughs> as I'm talking to you. It's uncomfortable, but it's true. What will a man give in exchange for his soul? <laughs> in exchange for being in the presence of God Almighty for eternity. What if he gained the whole world? People aren't giving up their souls for the whole world. Usually it's for one night or one moment. It's a thing that's going to be gone. Whew. God gave them an opportunity to obey. Then he blessed Adam and gave him a helper. I'm going to start reading in verse 18. The Lord, uh, and the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper comparable to him. Out of the ground the Lord God formed every beast of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to Adam to see what he would call them. And whatever Adam called each living creature, that was its name. So Adam gave names to all cattle, to the birds of the air, and to every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper comparable to him. So God, observing the situation, says it is not good that man should be alone. Want you remember, we're on the sixth day still. This is not that God has been watching Adam for a while and he sees him moping around the garden all lonely and looking at all the animals that have their mates and he doesn't have one. There's a lot of mythology around this. God in his eternal wisdom 
has determined it is not good that man should be alone. doesn't mean that every man's going to marry. Jesus didn't marry. Paul didn't marry. Barnabas didn't marry. There's a lot of men that were good servants that never married. But it does mean that it's not good for man to be alone. <laughs> Think about the fact that even in the perfect garden, where it would have been perfect, if God had decided to leave Adam alone, he didn't. He gave him a helper. Think about when he brings Israel into this promised land, this renewed garden. He doesn't leave them alone. He gives them a nation around them. Think about when God calls us to his presence in Christ. He doesn't leave us alone. He gives us a family, the church of his son, and brings us into the family of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. That baptism in Matthew 28 says baptized into the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, literally into their name, into the Holy Spirit, um, using the old King James language here. But the concept of God thinking we should not be alone is all through the Bible. <laughs> we need him, and we need each other. Where does that come from? Let us make man in our own image. Even God is not alone. <laughs> it's God Father and God the Son and God the Spirit. <laughs> there is fellowship, and that's a part of God's nature, and he wants fellowship with us. We'll find that in chapter 3 in just a moment. He came down into the garden to have fellowship with his creation, the part that could have fellowship, real fellowship with him. God knows it's not good for man to be alone. When you're trying to be a Christian on your own, you're going to fail. <laughs> We need each other. I need you, and you need me, and God made it that way, and it is not good. That ought to be really shocking when we see it is not good, because seven times already we heard it is good, it is good, it is very good. But on the sixth day, there was a moment when God said it is not good. Now, in the end, it's very good. So after he makes woman and brings her to the man, all of this process on the sixth day, he's rectified the problem. God's the God of solutions. It's not good for man to be alone, and so I'll make him a helper comparable to him. From the outset, God's intent for the woman was to be a helper for the man, not a governor over the man, not an equal in terms of the share of the labor, a helper, a role that's distinct, separate, just like he's been separating and sanctifying everything. It is hard to understand in our society that women have a sanctified, a holy role as mothers and as wives. In the New Testament, Paul says to Timothy and to Titus that a woman's role is in the home. It's not saying she can't work outside the home, but if her work outside the home interferes with her being able to fulfill her role as a woman in the home, then she's taken something that was holy and profaned it. <laughs> Make sure... <laughs> That X outside work does not interfere, does not circumvent the work that God has given you to do holy in your home. <laughs> Where you're raising the next generation of holy people to the Lord. That was God's design in Israel and it certainly is designed in the church. <laughs> and so God has made woman to be the helper that is comparable. She's able to do what no other part of the creation can do. She's like him. Just like he is like God, they both were made in God's image back in chapter 1. We saw that. It's not that God has made some really special man in this low-rate woman. She's comparable in many, many ways, in every way that's important. Equal before God, but with distinct roles. But in our society, uh, there's a tendency then to elevate women, feminism, that ends up necessarily putting men down. That's not something that glorifies God. Or there's a tendency that perhaps we're on the other end of the pendulum from that now, but there was chauvinism where women are just put down, they're worthless, they're objects. That's not glorifying to God. 
What's glorifying to God is when we work together and we fulfill the role that's been given. The Lord formed, had formed, verse 19 says, and my new King James got that one wrong. <laughs> had formed is the tense of the verb here. Every beast of the field, every bird, and he brought them all to Adam. They had already been made before Adam and Eve on day five and day six. All the animals were made. He just brought them to Adam to see what he would name them. So he's allowing Adam to use another part of his dominion, giving names. Who's been giving names? Light and dark, day and night, earth and seas. God has been. But he made Adam and Eve like him, and now they're giving names. Adam's giving names to the animals here. Later, Eve and women will give names to their children. Isn't that interesting? It's part of their dominion, part of what God has put in our nature. So God has allowed Adam to see all these animals and to give names. I believe he's allowing Adam to understand his need. It doesn't take forever. It doesn't take months and months of Adam lonely. There's not a question of loneliness here. That's a feeling. There's a question of aloneness. That's a state. God says the aloneness is not good. Sometimes loneliness is actually good. Jesus was sent off into the, into the wilderness for 40 days. He was lonely, but the angels then attended him. He was out there with the wild beasts, Mark says. But the angels then attended to him as he strengthened himself in the Lord. Loneliness sometimes is a good thing because it makes us long for the fellowship that we need with God and with men. Loneliness was not the issue here. Aloneness was. Understand the difference between those two. God makes all these animals, or had made these animals, brought them before Adam. As Adam begins to name them, you know, here's tree knocker over, or here's uh, flower pollinator, whatever the names are he's giving them. He's watching what they do and giving them names to their functions. He recognizes none of these can help me. <laughs> he turns to the panda and says, hand me that hammer. And the panda goes, <laughs> hammer? Uh, but when the wife's there, he can say, why don't we move this couch over here <laughs> or whatever. They can reason together, work through things, but he can't do that with the animals, even with the most intelligent of the animals. So he recognizes there's no helper that's comparable to him. doesn't have anybody his equal to work with. And so God rectifies this, verses 21 through the end here. The Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he slept. He took one of his ribs and closed up the flesh in its place. The rib which the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman, and he brought her to the man. And Adam said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And they were both naked, the man and his wife, and they were not ashamed. Whew, God performs the first surgery here. You notice that? He put the guy asleep, opened up his side, took something out, and then closed him back up and wakes him up. <laughs> That's surgery. <laughs> it's miraculous surgery in this case. But he takes a rib out of Adam, and he forms the woman from the rib. You ever think about why a rib? <laughs> when I married my wife, there was a female justice of the peace, and she wanted to get a little poetic, and she said, God chose a rib. He didn't take a head bone so the woman wouldn't think she was above the man. But he didn't take a heel bone so the man wouldn't think he was above the woman. Took a rib bone so they would know they were meant to walk side by side. That's a beautiful kind of poetic thing. I like that. I'm not against that. I don't think it's biblical, but it is poetic and, and pretty. Why a rib? You ever think about that? What's the function of a rib? To protect the heart, to support the, the skeleton to protect the heart and really 
the vital organs, the lungs, the liver, and the heart. Those are the vital organs, biblically speaking. That's the, the seat of all of our life in, in terms of our organs. Of course, our brain is as well. But our organs here, our viscera, the ribs are to protect that. The woman, when she performs her role as she should in a marriage, in the world, will protect the vitality of her men. <laughs> I use this lesson sometimes when I'm talking about modesty. The very next verse will talk about them being naked. But women who are concerned with protecting the vitality of young men will be considerate of how they dress. Young men need to protect themselves as well and be aware. I'm not saying this is only a woman's problem. But a woman who's considering the vitality of the young men around her, of other women's husbands, will be concerned about protecting her husband Future husbands, uh, husbands of other wives, should be thinking about what a rib does, protect heart and lungs and liver and vital organs. God made her, in essence, in part, to be a protector. He brought her to the man, and the man said, I'm going to give her a name. He's been naming all the animals. Hadn't found anything comparable, but her, whoa, man, I love that. In every translation I've read this, her name is a part of his name. Did you notice that? In Hebrew, it's ish. He calls her isha. That's the female version. In Portuguese, it's varão and varoa. In English, it's man, woman. But it's always a part of him. He gives her his name. Does that sound familiar? How many here that are married did not give your name to your wife? There's a trend now where you take the wife's name. A good friend of mine in college did that. That's this feminism taking over. But we hold that in our culture, and most cultures hold that, that you give your wife your name, <laughs> just as Adam did. And a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. For the longest time, I struggled with that. The way that was in my original Bible that I began studying with, it looked like Adam said that. I thought, how does he know about father and mother? And Matthew 19 helped me when Jesus said, the one who made them at the beginning, male and female, said, this is God's commentary on marriage. It happens with the first marriage. A man leaves father and mother, joins a wife, to <laughs> become one flesh. Whenever marriage is referred to in the Bible, it goes back to this language every single time. <laughs> this is God's pattern for marriage. You know who didn't invent marriage? Lonely men. <laughs> rock stars <laughs> those kind of people that we look at these shambled marriages they have and multiple marriages and multiple wives the kings of israel didn't invent marriage they ruined marriage so often god invented marriage <laughs> and he designed it perfectly to be a, a glimpse of and a return to paradise <laughs> some of you know exactly what i'm talking about because you've done it god's way <laughs> what a blessing others may not have but it's not too late Restore what God intended for your marriage. Live the way he wants you to live. And you'll find paradise in your marriage. What a blessing it is. I love when my wife gets to be with me when I teach these lessons. Because people can go ask her later, is, 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 is that really the way it is? It's not perfect. We're both struggling in a broken world. But it's paradise. It is so good. It is such a blessing, and I can't imagine how people that don't have the Lord do it. He gave her his name, 
And God made the commentary that they would separate from their original families. Not that they're going to reject them. He says, honor father and mother. That doesn't change us because we got older. <laughs> we still honor father and mother. The way we treat them, the way we live. He got on the Pharisees' case because they were rejecting the honor due to their father and mother because they thought they had a gift that was more important to give to God. His gift was, obey me. <laughs> do what I told you to do at home first. Then come put all your money in the coffers. You want people to see how much money you're giving. But take care of mom and dad. <laughs> honor literally means place value on. As children, we place value on what they're instructing us. That's what Solomon says over and over. Son, value your mother's instruction. <laughs> value your father's instruction. That's honoring mother and father by placing a value. When we're older, we place a value by taking care of them. We spend some money as they spent a lot of money on us. That's what that literally means. But become one flesh. There are two ideas here, and I'm going to wrap up with this. There is the physical concept. Paul picks that up in 1 Corinthians 6. There's no doubt. Sexual union unites men and women, reunites two people in a way that nothing else can. And it should not be anywhere except in the marital bed. <laughs> the bed is not defiled, Hebrews 13 says, in the marital union. But fornicators and adulterers, anything outside of the marital union, God will judge. There's a blessing, though, when it's done his way within the marital uh, uh, relationship. And they will become one flesh in terms of their goals and their mind as God is one. We don't see the Holy Spirit and Jesus fighting about what needs to be done or God arguing with Jesus because he didn't do it the right way. Jesus says, I and the Father are one and he loves me because I always do the things that please him. That's John 8, 29. <laughs> always. Jesus prayed in the garden, here's what I want, but what I want more is what you want. <laughs> Boy, wouldn't that help in our marriages? <laughs> here's what I really want, but... What's going to be better for you? What's going to be better for our marriage? What does God want? That's what we need to be doing. And so because of this union, they're both naked, man and his wife, but there's no reason for shame. There is nothing untoward about this. It's just the two of them in this paradise that God made them, and there's no reason to cover any shame. That is going to be one of the first things that's going to change. As soon as sin comes in, shame enters and the need to cover up. We'll talk about that, God willing, in the next lesson. Thanks for listening. Thanks for your comments. <clears throat>